first episode of Running Mead Radio of the 2020-2021 academic year. Our inaugural episode for this academic year features a conversation with Professor Philippe Lagasse of the Norman Peterson School of International Affairs at the University of Carleton. Professor Lagasse and our national director, Mark Mancini, discuss parliamentary prorogation, a timely topic given recent events in Ottawa. We hope you enjoy this episode and encourage you to stay tuned throughout the academic year. Okay, well, welcome everyone to uh, this first episode of our second season of Running Mead Radio. It's the start of a new school year and therefore the start of our, our new podcast season. So we're very excited today uh, to have Professor Philippe Lagasse uh, to discuss the prorogation of Parliament uh, and the, some of the rules and considerations around uh, prorogation in general. So welcome, Professor. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So I guess we'll, we'll start off by maybe just going right down to basics for those that uh, are unfamiliar. I mean, I'm not a parliamentary procedure person myself, so this will be helpful. But um, can you start by just explaining what it means for the governor general to prorogue parliament uh, on the advice of the prime minister? Sure. So I think it's important to recognize what a parliament or how parliament is divided. So when there is a dissolution of parliament, um, that particular parliament ceases. And when there, the parliament is recalled or summoned, then we begin a new parliament. So within that particular parliament, we're also able to break it down into different sessions. And it's important to uh, differentiate sessions from just a simple adjournment. So an adjournment is something that you will find within a a single session, whereas what a prorogation does is that it brings a session to an end. So it's effectively a means of refreshing uh, the proceedings within that parliament. And what that means then is that uh, bills, um, government bills, that haven't received royal assent will be removed or be terminated. Committees need to be uh, reinstituted. Uh, Private members legislation does continue between sessions, but uh, government bills don't. And then what you'll need to do to start the new session is have a throne speech uh, on the part of the governor general that explains the plans for the next session or the, the new session that's that's beginning. And the purpose then of prorogation is really to allow governments to clean the slate, as it were, to start afresh and uh, present a new set of priorities and to clean uh, really the order paper and the parliamentary agenda for those new priorities. Okay, so you you kind of alluded, uh, this next question, you kind of alluded to, you know, the purpose of a reason why someone might want to prorogue parliament would be to clean the slate, to start afresh. But are there other reasons why the prime minister... uh, or any prime minister would seek to prorogue parliament in general. So what I've just described in, in answering your first question is really the way it should work, right? Yeah. The idea that you would be in a situation where, let's say, you have a new prime minister within a single parliament. Um, in that circumstance, or a new government even, you would want that new prime minister, that new ministry, to be able to give their ideas of where they want to go or present their priorities. Uh, Similarly, if a parliament's gone on long enough and there's a sense that, you know, we really need to start again or pursue new priorities might do it. So those are all kind of like the legitimate reasons why you would prorogue and why it's still useful to have as a tool. But 
the other side of it is, as we've seen in recent years, um, quite a bit, and even in the past, it's been used this way as well, is it does offer the government, uh, the prime minister, the opportunity to um, pause parliament for partisan purposes, right? So what we see in this circumstance would be uh, you can either avoid a confidence vote, as occurred mm-hmm. during uh, Prime Minister Harper's prorogation right. in 2008-2009, or you can bring an end to committee proceedings, as happened with the Afghan detainee committee hearings mm-hmm. in 2009, and as we're seeing now with the Wee scandal, that the one of the great purposes of prorogation for the executive is that it basically forces Parliament to cease conducting scrutiny into particular issues for a certain period of time. Yeah, so I mean, I'm kind of looking at this in the broader sense as well. You know, we've seen, uh, in addition to the instances you mentioned, we've seen instances that are not related to prorogation that I think many observers are calling into question uh, in terms of the health of our parliamentary democracy. So I think of the governments calling off of parliament during COVID. Um, and so kind of taking those instances into account and coupling them with prorogation, uh is frequent prorogation or prorogation for a questionable purpose, would you view it as uh, another nail in the coffin of Canada's parliamentary democracy when we couple prorogation with other things like the rise of PMO control and high levels of caucus control? Is this a, a live concern that Canadian citizens should be uh, worried about? Well, I think it goes along, uh, Mark, with, with a broader question, which is norm violations, right? Mm. Um, and I think this prorogation can be used legitimately. And there may be instances in which, you know, we can accept some kind of partisan use of uh, certain prerogative powers, right? So we kind of appreciate that on some level, let's say things like dissolution um, that favors a particular party at a particular time, or, uh, you know, bringing an end to debate or omnibus bills. These are all things that are there that, let's be frank, aren't great, but can also serve legitimate purposes when used judiciously and not abused. And I think uh, prorogation falls within that category of powers that as long as there are, as long as we cultivate and respect certain clear norms around them, Mm. we can maybe tolerate the occasional kind of hardball use of them. But when it becomes a routine mechanism to either avoid scrutiny or to evade confidence, votes, then yes, then I think then we're, we're looking at yet another instance of a power that either shouldn't belong with the executive mm-hmm. or uh, needs to be regulated in some other way in order to give parliamentarians a chance to better exercise their powers. Mm. So just, just out of curiosity, what, what sort of, how could we regulate it in a different way, maybe to avoid uh, some of the abuses that might come up with it? Well, others have suggested, uh, I've been thinking here just recently of my colleague, uh, Jonathan Malloy at uh, Carleton Political Science has said, well, why do we even have this at all anymore in a Canadian mm. context? So some are thinking, you know, it may be time just as a practice to to no longer use it, to kind of relegate it to the same place that we do with um, with uh, the the whole withholding of royal assent on the right. areas of the federal government in the provinces, right? right? So that would be kind of one a constitutional power that is formally still there, but that we simply kind of put into abeyance, right? So if we simply cease um, 
advising prorogation, over time, it may be seen as increasingly illegitimate. And it may even be headed in that direction anyway. Um, the, the larger challenge would be in, in a Canadian context, would there be a, f- a way to legislate it away? And I think there's a significant amount of debate there because on the one hand, it is likely that this power would be, would belong to those authorities of the governor general under paragraph 41A of the Constitution Act 1982 requiring you the uh, unanimous amending procedure. Uh, on the so getting rid of prorogation altogether would probably require unanimous uh, constitutional amendment, but there may be within that space an ability to either um, bind the prime minister in terms of how they proffer that advice, or to set up certain conditions around it. But that's really untested in Canada, and I suspect that you know there, no no government would willingly kind of subject themselves to that unless they made it part of a, an electoral pledge to to be part of a larger reform package. So. Uh, I think the, the the more likely solution is a little bit what we've seen in uh, in Australia and New Zealand, where they tend to have shorter parliaments, so prorogation becomes somewhat unnecessary. But this this notion that do we really need to do this? Is it really necessary to present a new agenda through the throne speech to clear away all legislation and to bring committees to an end? Does it really serve a purpose today other than? Um, abused by the executive. Right. I still think it does have some purposes, particularly when we change ministries, but I can understand the argument as well that no, you know what? Um, there may be other ways to, to, to do this where we don't need to rely on this particular prerogative anymore. That's very interesting. There's a, seems to be some avenues here to go down. Um, switching gears a little bit, we were talking about the abuses, like potential or arguable abuses of the prorogation powers, prorogation power rather. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, there was a landmark ruling in the UK last year about prorogation that uh, I found surprising and I think our listeners will find interesting as well. So can you maybe explain a little bit about the case and what was at stake in that uh, United Kingdom case? Sure. So it's important to put the the Miller II ruling, which was the UK Supreme Court's uh, ruling on the prorogation in the fall of 2019, into a larger context. Um, so since about the the, the late 80s, late 80s, uh, early 1990s in the UK, there's been a, a pretty strong movement against prerogative power generally, and it's used by the executive. Uh, a desire to reform prerogative powers and to either put them on a statutory footing or to transfer some of that authority to parliament. And we've seen that either with war powers, with treaties, with the civil service. And I think the, the most notable one is the power of dissolution, which was abolished altogether and transferred to the House of Commons with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Um, and along with that, after the, the Iraq War of 2003, there's, there was a general movement against executive power within the UK. Uh, when you look at the, the Blair government, and it resisted that initially, but then the Brown government kind of advanced that, the Cameron government advanced that. Um, and particularly in the time of hung parliaments in the, the 2010s, uh, there, there was this move to try and really broaden parliamentary control of the executive. 
when you put that in the context of Brexit, it it really exploded. Um, mm. And the, the the final year of the hung parliament uh, with uh, Boris Johnson as prime minister was really kind of an acute case of parliament even going against the longstanding conventions that that uh, that saw it deferring to the executive. Uh, parliament almost seeking to try and, and wrest control of the Brexit process from the government through legislation. Um, the Speaker at the time, John Burko, giving Parliament uh, wide powers or the House of Commons wide powers through certain interpretations of procedure and standing orders and whatnot. And really what I would say is the UK's decision, uh, the reason it's surprising is because typically uh, prorogation would have been seen as as non-justiciable or a political question. And we can get into the details of the ruling in a second if you'd like. Yeah. But the, the general consensus at the prior to 2019, I would argue, would have been that a prorogation, because it's so political, right. uh, because it, it depends so much on the political constitution in the UK, would not have been dealt with by the courts. But ultimately, um, in the context of Brexit, in the context of the, the decade, multiple decade era sense of moving against the powers of the executive and the discretion of the executive in the UK, the UK Supreme Court kind of followed a trajectory that it had been on already in previous cases and um, opted to de- declare the prorogation null and void in, on the grounds that it violated the constitutional principle of uh, the executive's accountability to parliament and parliament's ability to fulfill its function in the British constitution. Yeah, it was a very surprising, at least to my perspective, very uh, surprising. So let's, let's get into some details maybe. So the first, you mentioned the justiciability issue and um, I have to admit, I, w- I was sort of on the side of the people that thought it wouldn't be justiciable because uh, for few reasons, there's seems like there's little in the way of guidance. Uh, like unlike when a court interprets a statute, uh, for a court to conclude that a pro- particular prorogation is unlawful. And as you mentioned, this seems to be the stuff of politics rather than law. So were you surprised by the court's ruling on uh, reasoning on justiciability or, or, and do you share concerns that it might be entering the ruling might open uh, territory for the courts to enter into areas that are traditionally uh, quote unquote political? Well, I wasn't surprised by the ruling in part because of um Precisely what I what I was kind of alluding to before. I I fully expected that the the court was going to go this way, mm. uh, and the reason I suspected that is um, if you look at what this UK Supreme Court had been doing up to the decade leading up to to Miller two, it was really striking. I mean, you take a case like Evans, the, the famous spider memo uh, case involving whether or not um, people should have access to Prince Charles's private correspondence. The court went against the plain reading of statute in order to uh, allow that, right? Similarly, in Miller 2, even those who were somewhat critical of what the government was doing, or sorry, in Miller 1, even those who were fairly critical of prerogative power and what the executive was up to with respect to Brexit were somewhat surprised by Miller 1. Um, so there, there really seemed to be, and this is why I, I, I think it's important to place Miller too within this wider context of the relationship between the executive parliament and the judiciary in the UK, in the UK over the past decades, because it really was part, I would argue, of this larger movement. So it's, um, we're, the UK, at least up until 2019, was undergoing a, a, a significant constitutional moment. So I think it has to be put into that context. Now, that said, um, how they got to the justiciability issue, 
um, is not all that surprising in the sense that they do make the case or the, the Supreme Court made the case that the exercise of prerogative power has been understood to be justiciable in the past. So that's right. not overly surprising. Uh, and unlike in, in a Canadian context, um, there is no real distinction in the UK between constitutional prerogatives, as we might call them here in Canada, and just plain prerogative powers, even if they belong to the reserve powers of the Queen. So they, they had the, the opening that they could go into. But typically, when it comes to something like prorogation, um, because it does involve this executive uh, legislative dynamic and politics is deeply involved, the courts would shy away from it um, simply because, and even as Miller too kind of outlines, the criteria that you have to apply to determine whether or not the prorogation is legitimate or not is extremely difficult for a court to parse. Um, how do you know if, if a prorogation is, has a reasonable justific justification or not? And when you read the, um, the ruling of the Supreme Court, they're basically saying, well, typically prorogations are short. Uh, this one's a long prorogation. The government tells us that it didn't, it, it was going to be a long, uh, prorogation, but it doesn't matter because the party conventions were going to happen anyway. Uh, but the court determines that, well, the, the, the parties may, may have decided not to hold the conventions. Therefore, that should have been left up to parliament. So basically a five week prorogation is too long. Because typically speaking, the prorogations are about eight days in the UK, and therefore the the government couldn't couldn't provide a reasonable justification as to why it was proroguing for this amount of time. And yeah. you know, frankly, I'm I'm si simply saying this as as a political scientist reading this as opposed to to a lawyer. But to me, it's hard to say that there's any basis in in strong constitutional law here. I mean, the 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 court was clearly deciding that. For political reasons, it was important to step in here and protect what it saw as Parliament's primary role in holding the government to account. Um, and even the the invocation of constitutional principle here was was very uh, unorthodox, even by Canadian standards. And we can get into that further if you'd like. But the I guess the underlying point that I would make is that it's um, although the the UK Supreme Court said that this was a one off. And that this wouldn't happen in most cases. They have opened the door now uh, to evaluations of uses of, of reserve powers and other prerogatives on the grounds of reasonable justification or on the grounds of re reviewability for concordance with constitutional principles that the courts themselves define, which is very difficult to contain, I would argue. Yeah, so that, that was actually going to be my next question. Just, you know, this the, the test for prorogation itself, um, which just for our listeners, I'll, I'll just sort of read out here. So a prorogation will be unlawful if it has the effect of frustrating or preventing, without reasonable justification, the ability of Parliament to carry out its constitutional functions as a legislature and as the body responsible for the supervision of the executive. So you see some principles of responsible government in there and uh, legislative competence. So do you think the test is, like you kind of alluded to this, but do you think the test is judicially administrable or do you think there's going to be sort of problems on the margins here in applying it? Well, I think there's going to be problems across the board in part because uh, as a number of commentators have pointed out, and there was a, a good um, series of blog posts about this on the policy exchange website, 
uh, various people from different perspectives. But one of the uh, one of the blog posts kind of pointed out the the very important observation that what the UK Supreme Court did is take things like core constitutional conventions of responsible government, which would normally not be enforceable by the courts. So the executive's accountability to parliament, which is really in the Westminster system on the, on a constitutional convention footing, as opposed to uh, a law of any sense. And through some alchemy, they turn that into a principle that is justiciable and that is uh, uh, enforceable by the courts. So now the question becomes, how many of these conventions that we think are conventions and not enforceable uh, in courts of law now become principles that are enforceable? And if if that expands, then we get into a number of debates about two things. A, which conventions are principles, and then w- therefore which conventions can, can be enforced by the courts? Right. And B, this question of, as you were saying, how does a court determine what's a reasonable justification for the use of a number of these uh, prerogative powers? So we can think of, you know, uh, the prerogative to deploy the armed forces overseas, the prerogative to ratify treaties, the prerogative to dissolve parliament, the prerogative to probe, which is the one that we're talking about now, uh, the, the dismissal and appointment of ministers. I mean, there's a number of areas where this could get fairly interesting. And in a Canadian context, if we do import this, it would go against our fairly standard tradition of being quite deferential in the use of these powers. Right. So that you preface my next question, which is just, you know, sort of what are the chances that this the ruling and the, and the reasoning in, in the case could be applied in Canada? I'm, I'm of two minds about this. Um, getting back to this notion of putting the courts within a, a, a wider constitutional culture. Uh, I don't think that in Canada we're having the same type of constitutional moment around executive power that we saw in the UK over the past decade and more. Um, Canadian courts, uh, unlike the Supreme Court, moreover, have been effectively supreme over the Constitution for 20, 30 years now. So they also are much more comfortable with the importance of balancing their sphere of control over things like the charter and respecting for their own legitimacy, I would add, uh, the spheres of the executive and and parliament in in their areas. So what I mean by that, just to translate it, is that in the Canadian context, uh, the Supreme Court is mindful of the fact that for it to remain the last voice on uh, constitutional issues related to rights and the amending formula and things of that nature. It is, it has a, an interest in not interfering too dramatically in the use of the executive's powers that are proper to the executive and similarly in parliament's unique sphere of competencies. And we saw this even in Mikusku when it comes to the honor of the crown and other things like that. Mm, so I right. suspect that even from a, from the perspective of constitutional culture, the, the courts, the Supreme Court in Canada would not go that way. That said, um, I would not be surprised if the lower courts start to take this up initially um, and if there's interest in what the UK has done and if it's seen as one of these core cases of significant precedent across uh, the Westminster system. So we can think of other cases when it comes to prerogative that had a wide influence uh, in Canada, 
Australia and New Zealand that came out of the UK. So De Kaiser would be one, right? Where the, the, the basic principle of the justiciability and reviewability of prerogative power was kind of cemented and, and was, had a Paul, had a transfer across different legal systems as a result. And I wouldn't be surprised if there is a greater sense now of the fact that maybe the courts do have an obligation to uh, be be more involved in reviewing what previously would have been seen as purely political decisions. But my sense is that the Supreme Court of Canada will probably not go there at this point. Hmm. Yeah, okay, that's, that's interesting. So I guess my, my final question for you and uh, – you know, I think this is this is an important an important question. What are the risks of the of the Miller two approach from sort of a separation of powers perspective? I mean, I, I you know, I'm in Canada. I speak of it sort of loosely because our separation of powers, of course, is not as strict um, as say the United States, but there is a separation between the political branches and the courts, uh, at least in theory. So is that risk a live one here? Um, in, the t- in terms of the tests that the, the court in the UK came up with, or, or is it something that we shouldn't be that worried about? No, I, I think you're right. I think there, what this does open the door to um, a weakening of the political questions doctrine that we've developed. So there are certain, particularly around the use of prerogative powers, there are certain decisions that um, are arguably not amenable to uh, judicial decision and judicial uh, judgment, right? Mm. So you can think, again, I I go again to how do we know when the proper time is for a dissolution of parliament? And uh, after our fixed election, our fixed date election uh, legislation was passed, Duff Conacher tried to bring this to the courts to try and see if that bound the prime minister uh, to respect those dates that ha- had that legislation created a constitutional convention. And that ruling ultimately found that, no, it didn't, that the prime minister retained the discretion to advise a dissolution at any time. But does this, would it be the same now post Miller II? Uh, and I think that is a material question. Um, mm-hmm. Does it change the way courts understand their role? Um, I'm still of the view that Canadian courts are going to tread very carefully here because uh, just to to reiterate the point, if they become too involved in political questions, then I suspect that people are going to start asking just how powerful should the courts be in Canada? I mean, they already dominate so many other areas of of, uh, our constitutional life that if they even begin to have the final decision-making power over areas that have traditionally been political or executive or parliamentary in nature, that this will be a, a significant extension of, of an already supreme judicial power in Canada. Mm. So I, I suspect not, but um, I would not rule it out entirely. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a trend. That's for sure. Well, uh, I, I want to uh, thank you, uh, Professor, for your time today. Uh, it's a very interesting discussion. I certainly learned a lot, and I think our listeners will uh, will similarly have learned a lot by the end of the conversation. So uh, thank you for your time, and uh, stay tuned for our listeners for our next episode of Running Mead Radio, which will be uh, out in September or October. So thank you again, Professor. Thanks very much.